0: Thank you for joining us around the fire. For more information or to make a donation, please visit RandomActNetwork.com. Now, want to hear a scary story?
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
0: A long time ago, there lived a skillful scientist who had experienced a spiritual reaction more striking than any chemical one. He had left his laboratory in the care of his assistant, washed the chemicals away from his hands, and asked a beautiful woman to become his wife. In those days, new scientific discoveries, such as electricity, seemed to open paths into areas of miracles. It was not unusual for the love of science to compete with the love of a woman. The scientist's name was Almer. He had so totally given himself to scientific studies that he could not be weakened by a second love. His love of his young wife could only be the stronger of the two if it could link itself with his love of science. Such a union did take place with truly remarkable results. But one day, very soon after their marriage, Almer looked at his wife with a troubled expression... In the center of Georgiana's left cheek was a mark, deep in her skin. The mark was usually a deep red color. When Georgiana blushed, the mark became less visible. But when she turned pale, there was the mark, like a red stain upon the snow. The birthmark, shaped vaguely like a small human hand, would come and go with the emotions in her heart. Past lovers would say that the hand of a magical fairy had touched her face as a child. Many men would have risked their lives for the honor of kissing that mysterious hand, but other people had different opinions. Some women said the red hand destroyed the effect of Georgiana's beauty. Some men, who did not favor the mark, simply wished it away so they did not see it. After his marriage... Almer discovered that this was the case with himself. Had Georgiana been less beautiful, he might have felt his love increased by the prettiness of that little hand. But because she was otherwise so perfect, he found the mark all the more repulsive. Almer saw the mark as a sign of his wife's eventual sadness, sickness, and death. Soon, the birthmark caused him more pain than Georgiana's beauty had ever given him pleasure. Georgiana, he said,
2: have you ever considered the mark upon your cheek might be removed?
0: (laughs) No, she said smiling. But seeing the seriousness of his question, she said, the mark has so often been called a charm that I was simple enough to imagine it might be so.
2: On another face it might, but not on yours. "'No, dear. Nature made you so perfectly that this small defect shocks me as being a sign of earthly imperfection.' "'Shocks you?'
0: cried Georgiana, deeply hurt. Her face reddened, and she burst into tears. "'Then how could you marry me? How could you love with shocks you?' During a period that should have been their happiest, Almer could only think of this disastrous subject. With the morning light... Almer opened his eyes upon his wife's face and recognized the sign of imperfection. When they sat together in the evening near the fire, he would look at the mark. Georgiana soon began to fear his look. His expression would make her face go pale, and the birthmark would stand out like a red jewel on white stone. "'Do you remember, dear Almer?' she asked with a weak smile." About the dream you had last night, about this hateful mark. He rubbed the sleep from his eyes, the memory of his dream returning. He had imagined himself with his assistant trying to remove the birthmark with an operation. But the deeper his knife went, the deeper the small hand sank until it had caught hold of Georgiana's heart. Almer felt guilty remembering the dream. "'Almer,' pleaded Georgiana, "'we do not know what the cost could be to both of us to remove this birthmark. "'I fear being left deformed or with damage to my health.'
2: "'Dearest Georgiana, I have spent much thought on the subject. "'I am sure it can be removed.'
0: Georgiana exhaled, looking away. "'Life is not worth living while this mark makes me the object of your horror.' "'You are deeply knowledgeable, and have made great discoveries. "'Please, Almer, remove this mark for the sake of your peace and my own.'
2: "'Dearest wife.'
0: He deliberately kissed her unblemished cheek.
2: "'I am ready to make this cheek as perfect as its other half.'
0: The next day the couple went to Almer's laboratory, where he had prepared a beautiful room for his wife.' Though he had previously made several famous discoveries, Almer's series of powerful experiments failed, one by one. The mark remained. Georgiana waited in her room, reading through his notebooks of experiments and observations. She could not help but notice that many of his experiments had ended in failure, she decided to see for herself the scientist at work. The first thing that struck Georgiana when she entered the laboratory was the hot furnace. From the amount of soot above it, it seemed to have been burning for ages. She saw machines, tubes, cylinders, and other containers for chemical experiments. What most drew her attention was Almer himself. He was nervous— And pale as death as he prepared a liquid, Georgiana realized that her husband had been hiding his tension and fear. You think so little of me that you couldn't be honest about the risks we are taking?
2: My dear, nothing shall be hidden. I have already given you chemicals powerful enough to change your entire physical system.
0: I I will drink whatever you give me, even if it's a poison.
2: My dear, you've got just one thing left to try. If it fails, we are ruined.
0: He led her back to her room where she waited once more alone with her thoughts. She hoped that for just one moment she could satisfy her husband's highest ideals. But she realized then that his mind would forever be on the march, always requiring something newer, better, and more perfect. Hours later, Alma returned, carrying a crystal glass with colorless liquid.
2: The chemical process went perfectly. Unless all my science has tricked me, it cannot fail.
0: To test the liquid, he placed a drop in the soil of a dying flower growing in a pot. In a few moments, the plant danced back to life, becoming healthy and green once more. Give me the glass. Georgiana said quietly, I do not need proof. She drank the liquid and immediately fell asleep. Almer sat next to his wife, observing her and taking notes. He noted everything her breathing, the movement of an eyelid. He stared at the birthmark, and slowly, with every breath that came and went, it lost some of its brightness. By heaven! It is nearly gone. He opened the window coverings to see her face in daylight. She was so pale. Georgiana opened her eyes and looked into the mirror her husband held. She tried to smile as she saw a barely visible birthmark. My dear success. My poor Elmer, she said, gently. With so high and pure a feeling... You have rejected the best the earth could offer. As the last trace of color disappeared from her cheek, she gave her last breath. His eyes rested on her barren, snow-colored cheek. She was so alluring, even in death. Yet, without the rosy hand embellishing her face, her commanding beauty was no more leaving behind an average facade unworthy of note. A plain face could so quickly be forgotten. In trying to improve his lovely wife, he had failed to realize that she had been perfect all along.
3: The Birthmark, story by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Adapted by Brian Renaud. Told by Shannon Lee Weber. Featuring Aaron Holland.
1: The messenger silently accepted the keys from the president of the bank and started for the stairs. Of course they wanted him to go down to the lower vaults. It was too dangerous for more valuable men. He'd been waiting on the steps, watching the human river swirling down Broadway. Few noticed him. Few ever noticed him. Everybody was talking of it. Even the president discussed it with the junior clerk. The Comet the tail of which was set to hit at noon. But the messenger passed silently down the stairs on his assignment. Down he went beneath Broadway, where the dim light filtered through the feet of hurrying men, down to the dark basement beneath, down into the blackness and silence beneath that lowest cavern. Here with his lantern he groped in the bowels of the earth, under the world. Everything of value had been moved out since the water began to seep in, but two volumes of old records were unaccounted for. Drawing a long breath, he threw back the iron door and stepped into the fetid slime within. A great rat leaped past him, and cobwebs crept across his face. He felt carefully around the room, shelf by shelf, on the muddied floor, and in every crevice and corner. Back in the far end of the long and narrow room, on a high shelf, lay the two missing volumes, and others. He pulled them carefully aside when... A low, grinding, reverberating crash filled his ears. Then the room was black and still. He groped for his light, swinging it around. The great iron door had closed behind him. Looking death squarely in the face, he forgot the records. He found no other exit, and he pushed and pounded on the door for what seemed like hours. Then the iron swung again on its hinges, Hitting something, unable to open all the way, he squeezed through to find the body of the vault clerk, cold and stiff. He felt sick and nauseated. The air was foul. Gasping for air, he fainted, falling across the corpse. He awoke with a sense of horror and leaped from the body. He groped up the stairs, calling to the guard. The watchman sat as if asleep with the gate swinging free. The messenger hurried by. He called to the guards, and his voice echoed and echoed. Finally, he reached the basement. There another guard lay on his face, cold and still. He dashed up to the cellar floor, into the bank. The bent, bowed, silent forms of men lay everywhere. The sight was appalling. Had there been a robbery turned murder? He saw the twisted, oozing mouth of the president, half buried under his desk. Then the thought seized him. If he was found here alone with all this money and all these white corpses... He tiptoed cautiously to a side door. Quietly, he turned the latch and stepped out into Wall Street. How silent the street was! He glanced up and down, then across the street, and as he looked, a sickening horror froze in his limbs. With a choking cry of utter fright... He fell against the cold building and stared helplessly at the sight. In the great stone doorway, a hundred men and women and children lay mangled and twisted and jammed as if in one wild, frantic rush to safety, they had crushed themselves to death. Slowly, the messenger crept along the walls, trying to comprehend, attempting to still the tremor in his limbs and rising terror in his heart. He met a businessman stopped in place along the same smooth wall stone dead with wonder on his lips the messenger turned his eyes away and sought the curb a woman leaned wearily against the signpost her head bowed motionless before her stood a streetcar silent but full and still a grimy newsboy sat in the gutter with the latest edition in his uplifted hand the messenger staggered on Far out from a window above, a girl lay with her eyes and mouth wide, gasping. On a shop step sat a little sweet-faced girl looking upward toward the skies, and... The messenger could look no longer. The terror burst in his veins, and with a great gasping cry, he sprang forward and ran, shrieking and fighting the air, until, with one last wail, he sank into the grass of Madison Square. When he rose, he gave no glance at the still forms on the benches, but, going to a fountain, bathed his face. He quietly gripped himself and thought the thing through. The comet had swept the earth, and this was the end. Was everybody dead? He knew that he must steady himself and keep calm, or he would go insane. He walked up Fifth Avenue to a famous restaurant and entered its gorgeous, ghost-haunted halls. He beat back the nausea and, seizing a tray from dead hands, hurried into the street and ate ravenously, his eyes closed to keep out the sights. As he forced food down, he realized,
2: Yesterday, they would not have served me.
1: Then he started up the street, looking, peering. He must rush to the subway. No, a car. He saw one and took his place in the seat. He tested the throttle. There was gas. He glided off shivering and drove up the street. Everywhere stood, leaned, lounged, and lay the dead in grim and awful silence. On past crowds and groups of cars, past a gay party whose smiles yet lingered on their death struck lips. He came back on Fifth Avenue at 57th and flew past the plaza when he heard a sharp cry and saw a living form leaning out an upper window. The woman screamed for an officer before the words trailed off into hysterical tears. He wheeled the car in a sudden circle, running over the still body of a child and leaping on the curb. He rushed up the steps and tried the door and rang violently. There was a long pause, but at last the heavy door swung back. She was a woman of perhaps twenty-five, rarely beautiful and richly gowned with darkly golden hair and jewels. They stared a moment in silence. She had not noticed before that he was black. He had not thought of her as white. Yesterday, he thought with bitterness, he would have been dirt beneath her silken feet. She stared at him. Of all the sorts of men she had pictured as coming to her rescue, she had not dreamed of one like him. Not that he was not human, but he dwelt in a world so far from hers. Yet, as she looked at him curiously, he seemed quite usual. He was a tall, dark, working man with a sensitive face and a poor man's clothes and hands. For a moment, each paused and gauged the other. Then the thought of the dead world returned. She cried. She cried. What has happened? All is silence. I see the dead from my window and. She dragged him to a sitting room where a maid and butler stretched in quiet, everlasting sleep. I had been shut
0: up in my dark room developing pictures of the comet which I took last night. When I came out.
1: The tears streamed down the woman's cheeks and she clung to his arm tightly.
0: What has happened?
1: He answered slowly. Something.
2: Comet or devil. "'swept across the earth this morning, and I have searched, and I have seen no other living soul but you.'
1: She gasped, and they stared at each other.
2: "'My father.'
1: "'Where is he?'
0: "'He started for the office in the Metropolitan Tower.'
1: "'Leave a note for
2: him here, and come with me. "'We will go, but first we must go to Harlem.'
1: "'Harlem?' But then she understood.
2: "'There's a
1: swifter car in the garage.' I don't know how to drive it. I do. In ten minutes, they were flying to Harlem on the wind. They took a turn on two wheels and slipped with a shriek onto 135th. He was gone but a moment. Then he returned and his face was gray. He placed something into his pocket.
0: You have lost somebody.
2: I have lost... everybody...
1: Out of the park and down 5th Avenue they whirled. In and out among the dead they slipped, needing no sound of the car horn. The Metropolitan Tower was ahead. Exiting the elevator car, they found the door of the office open. On the threshold lay the stenographer and, staring at her, the dead clerk. The inner office was empty, but a note lay on the desk, folded and addressed. Her father mentioned leaving with Fred for a spin in his new Mercedes. She cried nervously.
0: We must search the city.
1: Up and down, over and across and back again, on went that ghostly search. From Madison Square to the Williamsburg Bridge, over Brooklyn from Morningside Heights, silence everywhere.
0: What can we do?
1: It was his turn now to take the lead, and he did it quickly. In 15 minutes, they were at the Central Telephone Exchange. The grim switchboard flashed its metallic face in cryptid, sphinx-like immobility. She seated herself on a stool and donned the bright earpiece. She looked at the mouthpiece. She had never looked at one so closely before. It was wide and black, pimpled with usage. It looked... She beat back the thought, but it looked like... She turned her head and found herself alone. She spoke into the mouthpiece. Hello? She was calling to the world. Someone must answer. Hello! She called and called until her voice rose almost to a shriek and her heart hammered. Her voice dropped to a sob. She sat stupidly staring into the black and sarcastic mouthpiece, and the thought came again. For the first time, she seemed to realize that she was alone in the world with a stranger, with something more than a stranger. It was awful. She must escape. She must fly. He must not see her again. Who knew what awful thoughts? She gathered herself and glided into a side hall, shrinking back. The hall was filled with dead women. She leaped to the door and tore at it with bleeding fingers until it swung wide. She looked out. He was standing at the top of the alley, silhouetted, tall and black, motionless. Was he looking at her or away? She did not know. She did not care. She simply ran and ran until she found herself alone amid the dead and towering buildings. She stopped, looking behind and sideways, startled by strange sounds. Voices? No. The wind? She wondered if she was the last woman left. Suddenly, she craved the company of the strange man once again. She whirled and flew back, whimpering like a child, until she found that narrow alley again and the dark, silent figure silhouetted at the top. He said nothing as he helped her into the car. Now he seized the wheel. She wondered at the quickness with which he had learned to drive her car. It seemed natural. They looked into each other's eyes with unspoken thought. To both, the vision of a mighty beauty of vast unspoken things swelled in their souls. But they put it away. Returning to her father's office, they gathered rugs and chairs. Leaving another note, they ascended to the roof. He set food before her and wound her in a shawl, touching her tenderly. She looked up at him with thankfulness in her eyes. He watched the city. She watched him. Have you had to work hard?
2: Always.
0: How foolish our human distinctions seem now.
2: Yes. I was not human yesterday.
1: She looked at him. And your people were not my people. But today she paused. Slowly, the mighty prophecy of her destiny overwhelmed her. She was no mere woman. She was neither high nor low, white nor black, rich nor poor. She was primal woman. She looked upon the man beside her and forgot all else but his manhood, his strong, vigorous manhood, his sorrow and sacrifice. She saw him glorified. In fascinated silence, the man gazed at the heavens, looking outward toward the sea. Memories of memories stirred to life in the dead recesses of his mind. The shackles seemed to rattle and fall from his soul. He arose within the shadows, tall, straight, and stern, with power in his eyes, as though some mighty pharaoh lived again. He turned and looked upon the lady and found her gazing straight at him. Silently, immovably, they saw each other face to face, eye to eye. Their souls lay naked to the night. It was not lust. It was not love. It was some vaster, mightier thing that needed neither touch of body nor thrill of soul. It was a thought divine, splendid. Slowly, noiselessly, they moved toward each other. The heavens above, the seas around, the city grim and dead below. He loomed from the velvet shadows, vast and dark. Pearl white and slender, she shone beneath the stars. She stretched her jeweled hands abroad. He lifted up his mighty arms and they cried to the other, almost with one voice, The world is dead. Long live the... The cry of a motor drifted clearly up from the silence below. They started backward with a cry and gazed upon each other with eyes that faltered and fell with blood that boiled. The mad cry continued. The roar and ring of swift elevators shooting upward from below made the great tower tremble a murmur and babble of voices swept in upon the night all over the once dead city the lights blinked flickered and flamed and then with sudden clanging of doors the entrance to the platform was filled with men and one with white and flying hair rushed to the girl and lifted her to his breast my daughter Behind him hurried a younger man in his car coat, who bent above the girl and gazed passionately into her staring eyes. Julia, my darling, I thought you were gone forever. She looked up at him with strange, searching eyes. She murmured, almost vaguely,
0: Fred, is the world gone?
3: Only New York. It is terrible. But how did you endure this horror? Are you well? Unharmed?
0: Unharmed.
3: And this man here, has he dared? He
0: has dared. To rescue me. And I thank him much.
1: But she did not look at the messenger again. As the couple turned away, the father drew a roll of bills from his pocket, thrusting the money into the man's hands.
2: Here, good fellow. What's your name? Jim Davis. Well, Mr. Davis, I thank you. I've always liked your people. If you ever want a job, call on me.
1: And they were gone. The crowd poured up and out of the elevators, talking and whispering.
3: Are they alive? He saved her. There she goes.
1: Into the glare of the electric lights, the man moved slowly, with the eyes of those that walk and sleep. He stood silently beneath the glare of the light, gazing at the money in his hand and shrinking as he gazed. Slowly, he put his other hand into his pocket and brought out a baby's filmy cap and gazed again. A woman mounted to the platform and looked about, shading her eyes. She was brown, small, and toil-worn, and in one arm lay the corpse of a dark baby. The crowd parted, and her eyes fell on the man, with a cry she tottered toward him. Jim! He whirled, and, with a sob of joy, caught her in his arms.
3: W.E.B. Du Bois Told by Terry Lynn Hudson Featuring Aaron Holland, Ashlyn Seahafer, and Brian Renaud
4: On the northeast corner of my vineyard in central North Carolina... There stood a small frame house of the simplest construction. It was built of pine lumber, and contained but one room, to which one window gave light. Against one end of the house, and occupying half its width, there stood a huge brick chimney. The crumbling mortar had left large cracks between the bricks. The bricks themselves had begun to scale off in large flakes, leaving the chimney sprinkled with unsightly blotches. These evidences of decay were but partially concealed by a creeping vine, which extended its slender branches hither and thither in an ambitious but futile attempt to cover the whole chimney. One day, my wife requested me to build her a new kitchen. Of course, I had to build it. To save expense, I decided to tear down the old schoolhouse and use the lumber, which was in a good state of preservation, in the construction of the new kitchen. I made an estimate of the amount of material contained in it and found that I would have to buy several hundred feet of lumber additional. One morning old Julius McAdoo, our colored coachman, drove my wife and me over to the sawmill from which I meant to order the new lumber. Our carriage jolted over the half-rotted corduroy road which traversed the swamp and then climbed the long hill leading to the sawmill. When we reached the mill, the foreman had gone over to a neighboring farmhouse, probably to smoke or gossip, and we were compelled to await his return before we could transact our business. We remained seated in the carriage, a few rods from the mill, and watched the leisurely movements of the millhands. We had not waited long before a huge pine log was placed in position. The machinery of the mill was set in motion, and the circular saw began to eat its way through the log with a loud whirr. Which sounded throughout the vicinity of the mill. Julius observed with a perceptible shudder, mm, but dat just do cuddle my blood. What's the matter, Uncle Julius? inquired my wife, who was of a very sympathetic turn of mind. Does the noise affect your nerves? No, Miss Annie. I ain't nervous. But that saw a cutting and grindin' through that stick o' timber, and moaning, and groaning, and squeaking, cares my memments back to old times, and minds me of poor Sandy. The pathetic intonation with which he lengthened out the poor Sandy touched a responsive chord in our own hearts. And who was poor Sandy? asked my wife. Sandy, said Julius, replying to my wife's question, used to belong to old Moss Marrable McSwain. Moss Marable's place was on the other side of the swamp, right next to your place. One time, when Sandy was lent out as usual, a speculator come along and Mars Marable swapped Sandy's wife off for a new woman. When Sandy come back, Mars Marable get him a dollar and loud he was monstrous sorry for the breakup of the family. But the speculator had given him big boot and times was hard and money scarce. And so he was pleased to make a trade. Sandy took on some about losing his wife, but he soon see they weren't no use crying over spilt molasses. And being as he lacked the looks of the new woman, he took up with her after she had been on the plantation a month or so. Sandy and Tennant hadn't been living together for more than two months before Mars Marable's old uncle, who had lived down in Robeson County, sent up to find out if Mars Marable couldn't lend him or hire him a good hand for a month or so. Sandy's master was one of these uh, easy-going folks would want to please everybody, and he says yes, he could lend him Sandy. It was monstrous hard on Sandy for to take him away from Tenny. It was so far down to Robeson that he didn't have no chance of coming back to see her till the time was up. Sandy was mighty sad and cast down after what Mars Maribault told him, and he says to Tenny, I'm getting monstrous tired of this year going round so much sandy this and sandy that and sandy yeah and sandy there till it appears to me i ain't got no home ne'er no master ne'er no mistress ne'er no nothing i can't even keep a wife. my other old woman was sold away without my getting a chance for to tell her goodbye and now i gotta go off and leave you Tenny, and i don't know whether i'm ever gonna see you again and no i wish i was a tree a stump, or a rock, or something what could stay on the plantation for a while. After Sandy got through talking, Tenny didn't say nary a word, but just sat there by the fire, studying and studying. By and by, she up and says, Sandy, is I ever told you I was a conjure woman? Of course, Sandy hadn't never dreamt of nothing like that, and he made a great moration when he hear what Tenny say. I ain't goofed nobody and done no conjure work for 15 year or more. And when I got religion, I made up my mind I wouldn't work no more goofer. But there is some things I don't believe is no sin for to do. And if you don't want to be sent round from pillar to post, and if you don't want to go down to Robeson, I can fix things so you won't have to. If you'll just say the word, I can turn you to whatever you want to be. And you can stay right where you want to, as long as you mind to. Sandy say he don't care. He's willing for to do anything for to stay close to Tenny. Then Tenny asks him if he don't want to be turned into a rabbit. Sandy say, "Nah, the dogs might get at to me." "Shall I turn you to a wolf?" says Tenny. "Nah, everybody's scared of a wolf, and I don't want nobody to be scared of me. I want to be turned into something what'll stay in one place." I can turn you to a tree," says Tenny. "You won't have no mouth nor ears, but I can turn you back once in a while so you can get something to eat and hear what's going on." And so Tenny took him down by the edge of the swamp, not far from the quarters, and turned him into a big pine tree and sought him out amongst some other trees. And the next morning, as some of the field hands was going along there they see the tree what they didn't remember eer uh, haven't seed before when Mars Marable discovered that Sandy was gone he allowed Sandy had run away he got the dogs out but the last place they could track Sandy to was the foot of that pine tree and there the dog stood and barked and bayed and pawed at the tree and tried to climb up on it and Mars Marabou allowed that Sandy must have climbed up on the tree and jump off on a mule or something and reared fur enough for the sport a scent. When Sandy had been gone long enough for folks to think he done got clean away, Tenny used to go down to the woods at night and turn him back, and then they'd slip up to the cabin and sit by the fire and talk. But they had to be monstrous careful, or else somebody would have seen them, and that would have spoiled the whole thing. So Tenny always turned Sandy back in the morning, early, before anybody was astern. But Santa didn't get along without his trials and tribulations. One day, a woodpecker come along and minced a peck at the tree. And the next time Sanny was turned back, he had a little round hole in his arm, just like a sharp stick been stuck in it. After that, Tenny sought a sparrowhawk for to watch the tree. Another time, Mars Marable sent a nigger out in the woods for to chop turpentine boxes. The man chop a box in this here tree and hacked the bark up two or three feet for to let the turpentine run. The next time Sandy was turned back, he had a big scar on his left leg. After that, Tenny saw a Hornet for to watch the tree. And when he come back again for to cut another box on the other side of the tree, the Hornet stung him so hard that the axe slipped and cut his foot nigh about off. When Tennis see so many things happening to the tree, she clueded she had to turn Sandy to something else. And after studying the matter over and talking with Sandy one evening, she made up her mind for to fix up a goofer mixture, what would turn herself and Sandy to foxes or something, so they could run away and go somewheres where they could be free and live like white folks. But they ain't no telling what's going to happen in this world. Tenny had got the night sought for her and Sandy to run away when that very day one of Ma's Marable's sons rid up to the big house in his buggy. And say his wife was monstrous sick and he want his mammy to lend him a woman for the nurse's wife. Tenny's mistress say send Tenny. She was a good nurse. Tenny tried to make some excuse for to get away and hide till night when she would have everything fixed up for her and Sandy. She say she want to go to her cabin for her to get her bonnet. Her mistress say it don't matter about the bonnet. Her head hanker was good enough. Then Tenny say she want to get a best frock her mistress say no she don't need no more frock and when that one got dirty she could get a clean one where she was going so tenny had to get in the buggy and go along with young moss duncan to his plantation which was mowed 20 mile away and there wasn't no chance of her seeing sandy no more till she come back home the poor gal felt monstrous bad about the way things was going on and she knowed sandy must be a wonderin' why she didn't come turnin' back no more Whilst Tenny was away nussin young Mars Duncan's wife, Mars Maribault took a notion for to build him a new kitchen. And being as he had lots of timber on his place, he begun to look round for a tree to have the lumber sought out. Tenny was gone, and there wasn't nobody and nothin' nothing for to watch the tree. The two men would cut the tree down, say they never had such a time with a tree before. They axes would glance off and didn't appear to make no progress through the wood. And of all the creakin' and shakin' and wobbling you ever see, that tree done it when it commenced to fall. When they got the tree all trim up, they chained it up to a timber wagon and start for the sawmill. First they got stuck in the mud when they was going across the swamp and it was two or three hours before they could get it out. When they start on again, the chain kept a coming loose and they had to keep a stopping and a stoppin' for to hitch to log up again. When they commenced to climb the hill to the sawmill the log broke loose and rolled down the hill in amongst the trees and it took nigh about half a day more to get it hauled up to the sawmill. The next morning after the day the tree was hauled to the sawmill Tenny come home. When she got back to her cabin the first thing she done was to run down to the woods and see how Sandy was getting on. When she seed the stump standing there with the sap running out in it and the limbs layin' scattered round, she nigh about went out in her mind. She run to her cabin, and got a goofer mixture, and then followed the track of the timber wagon to the sawmill. The hands at the sawmill had just got the big log on the carriage, and was starting up to saw when they see the woman running up the hill, all out of breath, crying and going on, just like she was plumb-stracted. It was Tenny. She come right into the mill, and throwed herself on the log right in front of the saw a hollerin' and cryin' to her Sandy to forgive her and not to think hard of her for it wasn't no fault of her then Tendi remembered the tree didn't have no years and she was getting ready for the a goofer mixture so as to turn Sandy back when the mill hands caught hold her and tied her arms with a rope and fastened her to one of the posts in the sawmill and then they started to saw up again cut the log up into boards and scantlings right before her eyes but it was mighty hard work for of all the squeaking and moaning and groaning that log done it whilst the saw was a cutting through it they greased the saw but that didn't stop the fuss it kept right on till finally they got the log all sawed up when the overseer would run the sawmill come from breakfast the hands up and tell about the crazy woman what had come running in the sawmill a hollering and going on and tried to throw herself before the saw and the overseer sent two or three of the hands for to take Tenny back to her master's plantation. Tenny appeared to be out in her mind for a long time and her master had to lock her up in the smokehouse till she got over her spells. Whilst Tenny was locked up in the smokehouse Mars Maribeau took and hauled a lumber from the sawmill and put up his new kitchen he didn't know what to do with Tenny. First, he thought he'd put her in the po'house, But finally, seeing as she didn't do no harm to nobody and to nothing, but just went around moaning and groaning and shaking her head, he clued to let her stay on the plantation and nurse the little nigger chillins when they mammies was to work in the cotton field. The new kitchen Ma's Maribou built wasn't much use. And by and by it got so Mars Marable's wife herself Was scared to go out in the yard after dark They could hear something moaning and groaning About in the kitchen in the night time And when the wind would blow They could hear something hollering and squeaking Like it was in great pain and suffering And it got so after a while That it was all Mars Marable's wife could do To get a woman to stay in the kitchen in the daytime Long enough to do the cooking That is, except in Tenny. She used to slip round at night and set on the kitchen steps and lean up against the dough jam, and run on to herself with some kind of foolishness what nobody couldn't make out. And they all knowed the kitchen was haunted by Sandy's spirit. Maz Marabou took and towed the kitchen down and used the lumber for to build that old schoolhouse what you were talking about pulling down. The schoolhouse was in use, ceptin' in the daytime, and on dark nights, folks going along the road would hear queer sounds and see queer things. Poor old Tenny used to go down there at night and wander around the schoolhouse. And one winter morning, when one of the boys went to school early for to start the fire, what should he find but poor old Tenny laying on the floor, stiff and cold and dead. She had just grieved herself to death for her Sandy. Mars Maribault didn't shed no tears. He thought Tenny was crazy, and they wasn't no telling what she might do next. And there ain't much room in this world for crazy white folks, let alone a crazy nigger. When the wall broke out, the school stopped, and the old schoolhouse been standing empty ever since. That is, seppin' for the haunts. And folks says that the old schoolhouse, or any other house what got any of that lumber in it, what was sawed out in the tree what Sandy was turned into, is going to be haunted till the last piece of plank is rotted and crumble into dust.
3: The Conjure Woman by Charles W. Chestnut Told by James K. White
5: It is impossible to say how the idea first entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale, blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold, and so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded. With what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him, and every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh, so gently, and then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed so that no light shone out, and then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly heard the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed, and then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked, I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights, every night, just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone, and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph, to think that there I was, opening the door, little by little, and he not even dreaming of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea. Perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch, with the thick, darkness, for the shutters were close-fastened, so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on, steadily, steadily. I had my head in, and was about to open the lantern, when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening, and the old man sprang up in bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still, and said nothing. For a whole hour, I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime, I did not hear him lie down. He was sitting up in the bed listening, just as I have done night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently, I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh no, it was the low stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well, many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up in my own bosom. I knew what the old man felt, and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart, I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in his bed. His fears had been growing upon him ever since. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not, all in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim, and it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine. stealthily, stealthily, until at length a single dim ray, like the thread of a spider, shot from out of the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray, as if by instinct, precisely upon the damned spot. Now I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too it was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldiers into courage. But even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried to see how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, So strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet, for some minutes longer, I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst, and now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. The night waned and I worked hastily but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head, and the arms, and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the boards so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot whatever. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. I smiled, for what had I to fear? I bade the gentleman welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own, in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure. Undisturbed, in the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears, but still they sat and chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but now I talked more fluently and with heightened voice, yet the sound increased. What could I do? I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do, I foamed. I raved. I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no, no, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. It is the beating of his hideous heart.
3: The Tell-Tale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe, adapted by Brian Renard, told by Don Morgan.